You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. We're going to be in 1 Kings 19 today. This passage has stuck with me uh, since... Man, since an early age in my faith, if you have scriptures, you can open them. There's some in the back or on your phone, or we will have it on the screen as well. We're doing a sermon series called Fail Forward. If you have any questions at any time, feel free to text those. I will do my best to take a look at those um, as they come in, or we'll have time at the end as well to take a look at that for sure. Uh, but kind of the idea behind the sermon series is this. We hate to fail. It is, can I say, can I be a little crass? It's, it's the F word that we want to avoid. We talked about this quote a couple times from Taya Cohen. She's a lead researcher at, at Carnegie Mellon, and she says, we don't like fail because, failing because at the root of it is fear. It's shame, feeling like one is a bad person or one has flawed if they fail. But what we're talking about in this series is that God uses our failure to help us heal, to grow, to move forward. It is a powerful tool of God. And so we're looking at biblical failures and how God has dealt with them and taking a little bit for our own life, letting God's word speak into those failures and into our own failures. Today we're talking about Elijah on the mountain. This story is incredible. It's some Star Wars level stuff going on. There's the big bad evil empire, Israel this time. The kings had just been getting bad and bad and bad and they end up at this king who is just the epitome of bad. And then you have Elijah who is the resistance, the rebellion, who's trying to keep faith in God against the big bad evil Empire. So here's some of the context for that. I probably have two Star Wars references for us today. Besides the one I just mentioned, that's how much this story reminds me of Elijah being a Jedi and Captain Ahab or King Ahab being the bad guy. So the king's name is Ahab. He's king and he's bad. And his wife's name is Queen Jezebel. And she's not a Jew. She's not from Israel. She's from outside. You probably know the name Ahab, if not from the Bible, then from Moby Dick, Captain Ahab. He's named after uh, that king in the Bible. What you need to know about Ahab is he's one of the worst kings of Israel. He's actually the son of the king Omri, who was actually a good king politically, a bad king religiously. So your biblical text is going to paint him negatively. But in the known world at the time, we have a lot of references to Omri as being a very good king politically. Uh, but he was a bad king. And his son Ahab was one of the worst kings because he did all the bad stuff his, his ancestors did. He's about seventh in line, uh, but he, he takes it to an extreme, which is this. Queen Jezebel. Maybe you know that name. People don't often name people that because of her. It's a name that's kind of used as a slur against women oftentimes. In the biblical text, it really doesn't have anything to do with erotic, seductive, sexual nature, though that's kind of the connotation we have. Really what she did was she convinced her husband to institute her foreign pagan religion the worship of Baal, or Baal, if you want to be fancy. And um, she, she convinced him to institute it nationally, to put up temples in the northern part of Israel, 
to Baal, to kill most of the prophets of the true God of Israel, to let her prophets be the main prophets and have all the people worship Baal. And so that's how Ahab gets a bad name because her, his wife changes the entire religion of northern Israel. And then Elijah is in the midst of northern Israel, and he's one of the best and coolest prophets of all time. John the Baptist is modeled after him. He's just a wild man who does incredible miracles. He's, again, resistance fighter for God in the midst of this oppressive king and queen, and he's trying to hold on to the worship of true God, Yahweh, from the beginning. And so here's kind of what happens leading up to our story. There's a three-year drought going on as punishment from God. Then he challenges 450 prophets of Baal in this competition where they're trying to call down fire onto this altar. And the 450 prophets of Baal are whipping themselves and trying to make themselves bleed. And they're trying to get Baal's attention. And, and Elijah is so cool in the midst of this. He's like, maybe your God's using the bathroom. Maybe he's sleeping. I don't know. I don't know why he's not answering. And then it's like, yes, yes. Some smack talk. Some godly smack talk. That's all I know. Then Elijah takes his altar and he drenches it with water, which is a big deal because there's no water in the land. There's a drought. But he drenches it in water and is, is sacrificed in his altar. And he gets everything soaking wet multiple times. And then he just prays one little prayer. God, I need you to show these people that you're real. real. And God torches the whole thing. And Elijah wins the competition. And then I love, just look how cavalier he is. Then he kills the 450 prophets of Baal. Because that's what happens in the Old Testament. We don't do that now, y'all, okay? It's different now. But he kills all of them. And look at the, what the scriptures say in chapter 18, right before this. Elijah brought the prophets to the Kishon Brook and killed them there. And then he looks up at the evil king Ahab and he says, Get up, celebrate with food and drink, because I hear there's a rainstorm coming. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a drought. He's like guess what? I'm going to end the drought. You better start celebrating right now because I hear the rain of crackling. It's just so, I mean, it just gives me chills the way that he's so confident in God and the way that he works. I mean, this is the king who wants to kill him and, and eradicate his whole deal. And he doesn't kill the king. He just tells him what's going on with God when the drought ends. But then Elijah runs for his life. After that victory, after seeing God work in a mysterious and powerful way, Queen Jezebel threatens his life, and that's the text we have today. We're going to read most of the chapter. This is a storytelling day. We're going to read the first half to talk about his failure and the bad news and how that impacts us, and then we're going to read the second half to see how God responds and what good news we could take from it. Hear now the word of the Lord from 1 Kings 19. Ahab, King Ahab, told his wife Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had, he had killed all of Baal's prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah with this message. May the gods do whatever they want to me if by this time tomorrow I haven't made your life like one of them. Again, what an incredible line. I mean, this is movie quality stuff. May the gods kill me if this, by this time tomorrow you're not as dead as those prophets that you killed. I mean, the, the tension, the escalation, the buildup, it's all here. Elijah 
was terrified. He got up and ran for his life. He arrived in Beersheba in Judah. If you don't know, the nation of Israel split in two, and he was in the northern half, which gets wiped out right away. It's the ten tribes that gets wiped out by, Israel, uh, by Assyria. And, so, and, and Elijah is a northern country prophet, but he runs down into the, the southern country, into Judah. And he left his assistant there, and then he himself went further into de- uh, the desert a day's journey, and he finally sat down under a solitary broom bush, and he longed for his own death. Remember, we did Jonah, same thing, prophet, longing for his own death. He says, it's more than enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And he lay down and he slept under the solitary broom bush. Then suddenly a messenger, an angel, tapped him and said, get up and eat something. Elijah opened his eyes and saw flatbread baked. Some translations say a cake. I like to imagine it's just a delicious cake, but it's probably flatbread. Baked on glowing coals and a jar of water right by his head. He got up, he ate, he drank, and then he went back to sleep. The Lord's angel or messenger returned a second time and tapped him and said, get up. The messenger said, eat something because you have a difficult road ahead of you. He got up, he ate, he drank again, and refreshed by the food, he went 40 days and nights into the desert, and he arrived at Mount Horeb, God's mountain, and he went to a cave to stay the night. If you know your scriptures well, you know Mount Horeb is where Moses, I mean, there's a lot of Moses illusions here. He's, he's, he's going on the pilgrimage journey that Israel went on many years before him. On the mountain, the Lord's word came to him. God's going to ask him this question two times, and in the middle, God's going to do a, a big event, but it's the same question both times. Why are you here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I've been very passionate for you, the Lord of heavenly forces, because the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They have torn down your altars and they have murdered your prophets with the sword. And I'm the only one left. The Hebrew has a double emphasis on I. I, I alone am left. And now they want to take my life too. Let's talk about his failure, the bad news, uh, before we jump into the good news of how God responds to all this. And I think it's this. In his fatigue and fear, he felt all alone. I, I alone am left. He was terrified. He had a double nap session, right? He's tired, he's terrified, and he feels all alone. He's telling God this, that he alone is left, and there's literally an angel bothering him to wake up. I mean, even the angel doesn't count in his mind of being all alone. I think sometimes we let our emotional and physical state speak the loudest word about who we are and the situation that we're in. When we're tired, and when we're terrified, that sometimes gets the loudest perspective about our life. We feel like the weight of the world is on all our shoulders. This is true for me. Three quick stories. My paternal grandmother was passing away, and uh, I spent a lot of time with her, and I was also working, and, and, and then I would go and visit her at nighttime. And my dad and my uncle and my grandpa, they just never showed up. They just couldn't handle uh, being there. It was too hard for them. And in that moment, I felt all alone. I was exhausted and I felt all alone. The matriarch of our, of our family was passing. The guy who plays guitar right here, 
Ryan and I went with a group of people to hike Mount Shasta. And the night before, we got lost, the whole group, and we walked around with these giant bags, bags on our, our back for hours and hours. We got to sleep at like 10.30 or 11 o'clock, and we woke up at 2 a.m. to hike the mountain by moonlight. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. I wish to never do it again. By the time we made it almost to the top, I think we made it to about there, and then this is a really steep part, the wind started whipping to the point where I got cold, I pulled out my extra jacket, and as I pulled it out, it, my jacket whipped off the side of the mountain, and the guide goes, and I'm in the back with Ryan, we're the youngest guys there, and we're just like, <sighs> the guide goes, the wind is like 70 miles per hour, I don't think we can make it to the top. I'd never been so relieved in my whole life. I was almost there, but I wanted nothing more than just turn around. I was tired. I was exhausted. I just felt like the weight, it just felt like too much. And I could not wait to head back down the mountain and get a cheeseburger. And I did. And it was delicious. And that's the best part of the whole trip. Maybe just at home. I was thinking a lot about this, even in my own relationships and my own marriage, that sometimes when you're exhausted, it just compounds those feelings of alone. So you're staring at laundry and you're just like, I am the backbone of this whole family. If I wasn't here, this whole place would fall apart. And it just builds a little bit of resentment towards whoever's not helping you. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you feel that? No? Just me? I replaced the water filter in the refrigerator, and I'm like, if I weren't here, these people would be dead. I don't know what they would do without me. I think this is true for us. In fact, the science bears this out. This is from the Harvard Business Review. Burnout at work isn't just about exhaustion. It's also about feelings of loneliness. And in the, and, and the first paragraph, they, they lay it out. There's a significant correlation between feeling lonely and work exhaustion. The more people are exhausted, the lonelier they, f they feel. There's a correlation between exhaustion and feeling all alone. And I think sometimes in this culture and in this day and age, it's easy to be exhausted and it's easy to let that exhaustion build up a sense of loneliness, a sense of being all by yourself, and that getting to be the biggest perspective that speaks the loudest in our life. I know that can be true for me. I'm thinking that's true for you. That certainly seems true here for Elijah. He's tired, he's exhausted, he's hungry, he's terrified, and he feels like he's the only one left in all of Israel. As we look at God's response, I'm asking you to think about where do you feel alone right now? Where are you feeling the weight of the world on your shoulders? Here's the rest of the story. The Lord tells Elijah, Go out and stand at the mountain before the Lord. The Lord is passing by. It says, A very strong wind tore through the mountains and broke apart the stones before the Lord. And I'm sure he was like, Can I just go back down? It's too windy up here. I don't want to. That's me. That was me on Shaz. Okay. The wind whips through it, breaks the stones apart, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound, thin, quiet. The old King James Version says, a still, small voice. Most scholars now think it was just 
an eerie, holy silence that gets Elijah's attention. When he heard the eerie silence, he wrapped his face in a coat and he went out and stood at the cave's entrance and a voice came to him and said, why are you here, Elijah? And Elijah says pretty much the same thing. I've been very passionate for you because the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They tore down everything. They murdered your prophets with the sword. And I, I alone am left. And they want to take my life too. And the Lord said, go back through the desert to Damascus and anoint Hazael of king, as king of Aram. Also anoint Jehu, Nimshi's son, as king of Israel. And anoint Elisha from Abel-Meholah, Shaphat's son, to succeed you as prophet. Whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu, Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. But I have preserved those who remain in Israel, totaling 7,000. All of those whose knees haven't bowed down to Baal and whose mouths haven't kissed him. That's God's response to Elijah's terrified, tired, and alone. What can we learn from it? Head, heart, hand, something for us to know, feel, do. This is what's sticking out to me. There's a lot of lessons we can take from it. This is what's coming to me. That looking for God in the big can blind us to the God who is in the small and everyday. I think Elijah has too big of a perspective about what's going on. The problems seem too big and overwhelming. All of Israel, well, let's get into it. The Lord's not in the bigness of the fire or the earthquake or the wind. The Lord is in the quietness. God's revealing something to Elijah about the small and the quiet because Elijah is saying, all of Israel has abandoned you and murdered your prophets. I'm the only one left. But God said, no, I've preserved a group, a remnant of Israel who is not worshiping this foreign God. 7,000, much bigger than you think. And so I think Elijah is overwhelmed by the bigness of the problem and he's focusing too much on the large-scale issues and God has a word to him about small, everyday Silent stuff. He overemphasized the bigness of the situation. He lost sight of the little faithfulnesses of God, of bread and water, of quiet and stillness, of a group of people who are faithful. This is uh, John Wooden. Probably the, he, he's won the most college basketball champions of any other coach by double. Uh, 10 in like 12 years or something, it's a record that is not going to be beaten for a long time. Uh, he has been named one of the greatest coaches of all time. And famously, uh, what he does before even the very first practice is, is he gets all these guys together two weeks before the first practice. And the first thing he makes them do is learn how to put their shoes and socks on the right way. He goes over it for like 30 minutes about putting your shoes and socks on the correct way because he says, those are your tools. And if you don't know how to put your socks on the right way, you're going to get blisters. And so he shows them how to put 
the sock over the baby toe so there's no wrinkle up there by the toe. And, and then he shows them how to put it over the, his heel or their heels so that there's no blisters back here. He's talking about the fundamentals and the small stuff. This is a quote from him. It's a little bit long, but I thought it was helpful. He wrote, I believe in the basics, attention to and perfection of tiny details that might be commonly overlooked. They may seem trivial, perhaps even laughable to those who don't understand, but they aren't. They're fundamental to your progress in basketball business and life. They are the difference between champions and near champions. For example, at the first squad meeting of each season held two weeks before our first actual practice, I personally demonstrated how I wanted players to put on their socks each and every time. Carefully rolled the socks down over those toes, ball of the foot, arch and around the heel, then pull the sock up snug so there'll be no wrinkles of any kind. There's a way in which we can get overwhelmed with the bigness of we need to win the game, right? We need to figure out how to make the ball in the basket. And he starts with socks and shoes. Getting lost sometimes in the bigness, we can forget about the smallness, the importance of small things. And I think that's the lesson that God's trying to teach Elijah. It's certainly the lesson that Jesus wants to teach us in many of his own parables. When Jesus wants to tell us what the kingdom of God is like, it's like a seed. It's like a coin that a woman lost and she spends all day trying to find it. Or, or one sheep out of a hundred going missing and yet the shepherd leaves all of them to find the one. Or plants growing or, or treasure buried in a field or, or, or pearl amongst many pearls. Jesus wants to teach us about the smallness and the small faithfulnesses of God in the everyday. And I think that's the lesson being taught to Elijah. A failure of ours could be to look only at the big stuff. Yeah? And like Isaiah, which we did week one, who got a big vision of God, God will sometimes overwhelm us with God's bigness. But like Elijah, God most often meets us in the small, thin, quiet spaces. What does God want us to feel in the midst of this story? Here's what I took away. Fear and fatigue are liars if they get the loudest voice. There is a future, and we are not alone. That's what God wants. There is a future. We are not alone. God says to him, anoint the king Jehu, anoint Elisha, anoint Hazael. Meaning, I got plans that go beyond you, that are bigger than you. I promise you I haven't abandoned everything that's happening. I promise you that there's a future going on. There's going to be a prophet that succeeds you. He's actually going to do more miracles than you. He's actually going to do double the amount of miracles. I'm only letting you do seven. He's going to do 14. I promise you there's a future. I promise you I notice what's going on. Go anoint those people. I promise you I've preserved a faithful group of people who are going to carry on the worship of the true God of the cosmos. You are not alone. There is a future. Now, it gets a little dicey, but this is the future. All those bad people are going to die. That's where this story gets a little wild, right? 
And, and Queen Jezebel does die. King Ahab does die. Jezebel is defenestrated, which is the fancy word for thrown out of a window to her own death. Uh, she is taken out. But that's the plan that God has. It, that justice is going to be met. Those people who led the people astray are going to be taken, counted, taken uh, to, to task. But I have a group of people whose knees have not bowed and who have not kissed the idols of Baal. In his fear and fatigue, he thought everything was doomed. But God gives him hope for a future beyond himself. It's that hope that I want to take away. That when we are tired and we are fatigued, this is the same word, and we are fearful, uh, God can remind us that God is in control and has a future for us. Here's one of my favorite Star Wars clips about hope. This is Jen Erso, and she's trying to convince the Rebel Alliance to go after this giant empire Death Star thing and get the plans. And they're saying, we don't really want to. It's kind of a, a death mission, and we're all doomed. And so we should just figure out how to live with the big bad empire. And she gives them a rousing speech. If the empire has this kind of power, what chance do we have? What chance do we have? The question is what choice? Run, hide, plead for mercy, scatter your forces. You give way to an enemy this evil with this much power, and you condemn the galaxy to an eternity of submission. The time to fight is now. Yes. Every moment you waste is another step closer to the ashes of Jeddah. What is she proposing? Just let the girl speak. Send your best troops to Scarif. Send the rebel fleet if you have to. You need to capture the Death Star plans if there's any hope of destroying it. You're asking us to invade an Imperial installation based on nothing but hope. Rebellions are built on hope. And that's honestly the feeling I get when God's telling him about these future plans. I know it's easy to get lost in the details of the names and the places of who's getting anointed to do what, when, where. But God is showing Elijah that there is a future. That there is a hope that God has not given up on these people or his salvation plan for the whole world. Instead of spaceships and Death Star plans, which I had not planned on typing before last night, God offers a glimpse at the future and the people that God plans to use to save the day. And God invites you to place your hope in his ability to manage the future. When you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders, all alone, it's God's invitation to put your trust and hope in Him, even more so. What does God want us to do? What does God want us to do in the midst of this? What does God ask Elijah to do? And maybe that's helpful for us. The God who gives food and dispels fear and controls the future also asks you to stay engaged in the fight also asks you to stay engaged with where God has called you. The Lord said to Elijah, go back through the desert, find these people, do this thing, stay engaged with what's happening 
I know you needed rest, a respite, replenishment, but I need you to stay engaged. After Elijah is rested, replenished, the plan revealed, he asks Elijah to return, to reconnect, and re-engage the fight, the place where God had called him and has called him. He gets to rest, though, which is good news. God will make you restored. He will replenish you through cake and water. Not my preferred replenishment, but... I'll take it. I'd rather a nice cold glass of milk, right, with my cake. But he'll give you the food. He'll give you the replenishment. He'll give you the rest that you need. But he's asking you to stay engaged. It reminds me of two more movies. I don't have clips, but which, I'll be honest, I've never seen this movie, which I, I know, I know. I get that reaction every time. Wesley climbing the cliff to try to get up to fight Indigo. <laughs> and it's a funny movie if you haven't seen it, which again, I haven't. But he gets up there and he's out of breath because he just climbed this really long cliff. He even helps him up. He's a gentleman and a scholar. Uh, and he gets up there and he goes, okay, let's fight. And he goes, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. Just rest, just rest. Like, I want you to be rested before we fight each other to the death. That's what they say, but they don't really fight each other to the death. There's an invitation to rest before engaging the fight. Again, Phantom Menace, Qui-Gon Jinn, fighting Darth Maul. There's these plasma doors. They're, they're coming in between them as barriers. There's a break in the fight. And Qui-Gon Jinn just kneels and he centers himself while the bad guy marches back and forth like a caged animal ready to attack the Jedi centers himself. He rests. There's an invitation to rest. God promises rest for you. Jesus says that he has rest for you. He promises to restore you. But God is still on mission. God has a place, a purpose, a call on your life. And after the rest or replenishment, God asks you to re-engage. So, what is your fight? What do you need to stay engaged with? Where are you letting exhaustion tell you you're all alone, which convinces you to leave the spaces God has called you to? And it could be so many places. It could be relationships, which seems so strained right now because, I think, exhaustion. Because division. It could be marriages. They're building resentment over feeling alone and some of the stuff it takes to just keep life going. Maybe it's relationship with your kids or your, or your parents. Maybe it's at work. You know that this is where you're called to be. These are the people that you're called to invest in, but it's just hard. It's just getting hard. Or I was thinking maybe even it's, it's your faith that you it just, there's just a lot of trying and things are just so hard. There's just, it just feels hard and you just can't name why it just feels hard, but it just feels hard for everyone all the time, including and especially yourself. And it's just, you, we are just in a mode of trying to survive 
we're in a mode of just trying to keep going but you can't stay there for long because it just is too exhausting I think God has an invitation to rest for you to replenishment to restoration but God is also asking you to stay engaged with him with one another with the places where God has called you into the community Jesus has rest for you and restoration for you but he also has a reason and a purpose for you beyond surviving, beyond just trying to make it through. And that is the lesson I take from Elijah's failure. That God is asking him to stay engaged. Questions, comments, ideas, answers to questions of what's going on. I got a couple here. To be fair, I haven't seen Princess Bride a thousand times yet either. No, I haven't seen it one time, y'all. One time. My family was like, watch whatever you want. So we didn't get to watch cool stuff. We just watched whatever we wanted. Somebody else said, this feels like wax on, wax off. That was going to be my example for the first point. The small faithfulnesses are the thing that actually win the day, right? He wants to learn karate. I don't know what form of karate is. He wants to learn martial arts from Mr. Miyagi. And Mr. Miyagi says, paint my fence and wax my car. And he just gets so tired of doing that. Finally, he's like, when are we going to do the stuff? And Mr. Miyagi was like, I'm going to try to punch you. And he learned martial arts through painting and waxing. That's, I've seen that one. <laughs> And that's exactly what I think is going on with Elijah, that, that he lost sight of the small faithfulnesses, the small ways that God interacts with us. Well, here's my conclusion. With our head, I want to tell you that always looking for God in the big stuff can blind us to God in the small and every day. And with our heart, uh, I want you to know that fear and fatigue are liars and there is a future hope. We are not alone. And with our hands, God is asking us, after rest and replenishment, dispelling fear, letting us know that he controls the future, that, that we need to stay engaged in the fight. Stay engaged where God has called us as best we can, not letting exhaustion cut short the activity that God has for us in that place and space. And here's my spiritual discipline for you for the week, my spiritual practice to put into practice what we learned here which is say a prayer to see God in the small things as you put on your socks this week. Some of you don't wear socks. You'll figure it out. Eyes to see, ears to hear, right? Just a small prayer for small things as we do the small things. And with that, I ask, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this story of Elijah on the mountain. We thank you for the way that you addressed his life circumstances of fear, failure, fatigue. And we pray that you would help us to continue to think about this story, to chew on it, that it would impact us in a meaningful way. That we would see how sometimes we want you to be in the wind and the fire, the earthquake. We want you to be in the big things. We want to see the big things. They're exciting. But we pray that you would help us to keep our eyes open to the small things, the everyday things. 
the, the constant faithfulness that builds the type of life that you want for us. Not needing the mountaintop experiences all the time. Not working hard to avoid the, the valley experiences all the time. But seeing you everywhere and all the times. The ways that you're working. The plans that you have. The ways that you are restoring us. We pray that as we come to this time of communion, the bread and the cup, that it would be a restoration, a replenishment, a rejuvenation. It would be the beginning of rest that restores us because you promised to meet us here whenever we come. And so we pray that that coming would be faithful. It would be rejuvenating and it would give us the energy and strength to stay engaged where you've called us. And we will give you all thanks and praise for the goodness that you've given us. Table Church, will you end this prayer with me by saying the Lord's Prayer, saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.